Hi, everyone. I'm Anya Parampil, and this is Redlines. My guest today is Vijay Prashad. He's the chief correspondent for Globe Trotter. His most recent article is titled Understanding the Complicated Politics and Geopolitics of the Coup in Myanmar. Welcome to Redlines, Vijay. It's a great pleasure to be with you. Let's go back to events which took place on February 1st of this year in Myanmar. That's when the military moved to arrest state councillor Aung San Suu Kyi, as well as other members of her National League for Democracy or NLD party. What was the pretext or justification for these actions? Right. So um, the first thing that people should know is that um, Aung San was the state councillor based on an agreement made between the military in Myanmar, uh, the uh, opposition movements that had been built after the great uh, Saffron um, Revolution, the protest movement of people who were young at that time, now 13, 14 years ago, um, it was an agreement also uh, which involved Western capitals, including the United States of America. The Obama administration played a role in it later, but it was there, um, which enabled Aung San to become the state councillor based on a constitution which the military had written, the 2008 constitution. Uh, that constitution is an odd one because basically a quarter of the seats in the parliament are filled, are nominated by the military. So the military already has a quarter of the votes. Um, two key posts in any government, defense and um, internal affairs or the home affairs ministry, uh, will be held by the military. So the military actually controls the country, even if there's a so-called civilian government. Plus, in the constitution, Article 417 allows the military to intervene at any point. You know, if they feel that there's a need for emergency, they intervene. Last year, there was an election. The current head of the military had hoped, um, you know, that he his party, the military party, would do well. And then when he retires his military post, he would come in essentially as the head of government. His party failed completely. They accused Aung San's party of basically fraud, electoral fraud. Um, there's really no evidence of electoral fraud, even though Aung San's party won an enormous majority. And so the day in, on which the parliament, uh, the vote had to be ratified and the parliament would then start to be seated, they moved and conducted, well, a coup against a government which is still dominated by the military, which is why I felt it was a coup but not really a coup, because it's already been a military government since 1962. Yeah, and you alluded to General Min Ong Halang. Yeah, I mean, he's an interesting general, Anya. I mean, he's a really interesting and crucial person. Um, this is a career military officer. Now, the, the thing to bear in mind in Myanmar is that after the military coup in 62, um, the military essentially has dominated all aspects of, of life. Uh, it's a lot like, let's say, the Egyptian military or the military in Pakistan, where it's not only, a, you know, they don't only have their barracks and their camps and so on. 
they basically run most industrial activity, commercial activity, and so on. General Minong Hlaing's family basically dominates sections of the economy. Uh, they are highly tied in. Uh, there was also a slight tussle, if I can say this, between sections of the um, the tycoons, the Burmese or Myanmarese tycoons, uh, right after uh, the the arrest of Aung San, after this, you know, coup not coup, um, the uh, military in Myanmar picked up three big tycoons who supported her government. You know, people like Zozo, uh, Chit Kiang, and others had been picked up and taken to undisclosed locations. They are being interrogated. Um, so. Uh, you know, General Men Aung Hwang, he's not just a, a, a general, he's got these economic ties, but then, of course, actually quite um, disturbingly, he is the one who signed off on the um, Myanmar army's campaign against the Rohingya people, uh, who are a, a population, live in Burma, have been in Myanmar for, you know, as long as we know, um, and whose lands border Bangladesh. This has been a sustained campaign that many people have called genocidal. The Rohingya refugees have had to flee to Burma and to uh, to Bangladesh and to to uh, Malaysia and Thailand. You know they have been put under enormous pressure in their own lands. So you know this general has himself been named in 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 the activities, this genocidal activities against the Rohingyas. And of course, it's not just him. Uh, Aung San herself personally went to the International Criminal Court to defend the government of Myanmar. This, of course, totally sullied her reputation. So you have this military general, he's taken over, but let's not you know, be too quick to say there are any heroes here. Yeah, you mentioned Aung San Suu Kyi's reputation. I remember years ago, she was heralded in Western media by Western governments. She was talked about as this hero and this leading figure of the movement for democracy in, in Myanmar. Can you give a little history of exactly who she is and how she went from rising as this international human rights icon to really falling out of favor in recent years? Well, you know, she comes from a place of some fortune because it's not her really. Now people remember her, but it's her father. I mean, her father, Aung San, was a national, is a national hero in Myanmar. I mean, he was the founder of the armed forces. Um, in many ways, he is really uh, one of the key symbolic figures. He fought, led the fight um, for independence of Burma then against British rule. Um, of course, there's a tragedy here in Aung San's life because about six, seven months before Burma got its independence, he was assassinated. And it's not exactly clear who assassinated him. It's still a mystery, as it were. Um, but uh, Aung San Suu Kyi is, is the daughter of Aung San, the only uh, child of, of, of his. Uh, you know, She comes from that. And she went into exile after the military coup uh, in that period, studied abroad, is extraordinarily well-versed in, in, you know, uh, in, in how to talk to people in the capitals of the world and so on, a very sophisticated person. Um, she did lead the fight for democracy against military rule, for which in 1991 she won the Nobel Peace Prize. When she cut this deal with the military, it really uh, hurt her reputation 
And when she went before the International Criminal Court 2019 and defended the military, this really hurt her internationally. But I'm going to tell you something interesting is that when this arrest of hers took place, when she was picked up on the 1st of February, and by the way, her two-week detention is going to be extended to, you know, we don't know when. When this happened, it's largely her political movement that came on the streets dressed in red, you know, out to protest not only in the major uh, old cities of Burma, but also in the military's, you know, homemade capital. Even there, workers in the state are protesting. They're calling this the drum revolution. They're going, they're refusing to work. This is continued right till the present. So, you know, she is going to, I think, in an interesting way, rehabilitate her reputation. Um, I think so. Well, we'll have to see because right now she's still in custody. I don't know what negotiations are going on. We don't know what they'll accept because the military may feel that they're losing control of the streets. They may actually back down and make a new deal with her. So it's not clear what's going to happen. But for a minute, her reputation is slightly back up again. But I don't think it's going to be easy for State Councillor Aung San to totally um, convince people uh, that she is this great Democrat, not after the way in which she defended the military and its campaign against the Rohingyas. Yeah, and that is interesting, especially because you talk about how it wasn't necessarily she didn't sign off on the military action. That was a, a military uh, led offensive against the the Rohingya. And yet she's the one who internationally has been marked with with that on her on her reputation. And really, it was interesting to just see how. Western media and governments completely flipped on their treatment of her, especially you write about how under U.S. President Barack Obama, Washington really made an effort to bring Myanmar into its orbit. Myanmar shares a border with China. You, you write about this. So where do Washington's interests lie as it relates to current events, this this latest military takeover in in Myanmar. Does Washington have a horse in this race? Well, you know, um, as a consequence of an earlier uh, military crackdown and then, of course, the um, events against the Rohingya, the genocidal activity against the Rohingya, the United States government put sanctions on, um, on Burma. And uh, by the way, I just want to back and say one thing that from 2012, there was pressure on um, Aung San to make a public comment about uh, the, the Rohingya issue, and she didn't. She even said in 2012 that she wasn't sure that the Rohingya were Burmese citizens. I mean, th this is actually part of the genocidal process, this uh, denial of, uh, of the right of these people to be citizens of their own country. So it's not that she may not have exactly signed the statement saying, now go and burn their houses and kill people. But uh, she did say that it's not clear that they're recognized as citizens. It's very chilling uh, at that moment. But Washington, you know, was hopeful that bringing her back into the picture, putting her as the head of government would be would enable them to allow, you know, to pivot Myanmar's um, role in the region towards Washington. After all, Thailand, for instance, is fundamentally in the camp of Washington, D.C., and Thailand has had a military government since 1963. You know, these are neighboring countries. 
Myanmar had a coup in 1962. Thailand had a coup in 63. And yes, over time, there have been civilian governments in Thailand. But look, if you talk to anybody, Thailand essentially is a military government with a fig leaf of a monarchy and an even flimsier fig leaf of a civilian government occasionally. Now, of course, when 2014, there was another coup in Thailand, the civilian fig leaf is gone. But it's the military in charge. United States dominates Thai politics and the, Thailand's relationship to the world. There was a hope that with Aung San coming in as head of government, Burma would also move into the so-called U.S. You know, sphere of influence. Myanmar has a long border with, with China. It does a lot of trade with China. It's part of the Belt and Road Initiative. And during this pandemic period, it's uh, Chinese medication and Chinese vaccines that are coming into the country. So I don't think it's a question of Aung San and the military again. I think anybody who's in government in Myanmar is going to need to have necessarily, because of the proximity, to have a close relationship with the Chinese. The entire basis of U.S. policy wasn't about democracy or this or that. It was all about undermining China in Myanmar. And, you know, to people who are confused about this, all I will say is that this is not about the, you know, politics of the government uh, sitting in, in Myanmar. It's not about that. It's practicality. You know, they share a 2,100-kilometer border with China. They're going to have to have relationships with China. It's like saying, you know, Canada um, should not have a relationship with the United States. That's absurd. Whatever the nature of the government on both sides of the border, these countries are going to have to deal with each other. But as typically, United States government was out there trying to cut Myanmar's relationship with China. It's got nothing to do with the military or Aung San. It has to do with the practicalities of their location. How has Washington worked to undermine Myanmar's relationship with China? Does it support groups or, or political movements within Myanmar that it thinks might have a better chance at, at pivoting all the way towards Washington? See, it's difficult in these countries to do what is known as a color revolution. It's not easy. I mean, you know, there have been Washington's ambassadors and so on. It's not easy to, to do this in Myanmar. Uh, now, it is also the case that it's a very young population, highly influenced by social media and so on. That's very much there. I, I, I'll tell you, though, uh, the protests going on now, uh, Washington can only fantasize that it has a role here. Th this is what happened. The military in Burma cut the Internet. The moment you cut the internet, you basically make life extremely difficult for people, for young people especially, especially during a pandemic. I mean, simple things like food delivery was cut off. You know, the online food uh, systems suddenly couldn't function. The kids playing games and all that, that was disrupted. Young people, a lot of them had online businesses, all of them gone. So they were furious with the military. And that's what actually drove a lot of people to go out onto the streets. It's not like they were saying, you know, we want a civilian government, military government. People are quite clear. This is not so, you know, simple to understand in, in Burma. They were very angry that the this suppressive action taken by the military had cut their you know, the ability to make a living because the internet is such an important, it's no longer just about transmitting information, it's how people make a living. It's not easy, you know, I mean, I'm saying that the State Department, they might have their little pieces of paper saying, how do we influence these young people in, in Burma? It's not going to be so easy. I think right now there is mischief afoot. 
some of these movements have come out and they've attacked China and they've attacked Russia, saying, why aren't they taking a strong position in the UN Security Council? So there is this protest movement has taken on a slight anti-China, anti-Russia character. This is something that people should look at, how these things develop. But I don't think this defines the protest movement. What does define this movement at the, at this point? Do you do? Is there a movement? You, you, it's it's. I I think it is hard for people to understand because you'd expect, oh, this is a movement for civilian rule. But is that even a possibility in in Myanmar? Why do you say that it's not easy to have something such as a color revolution in the country? Why is it different or or unique? Well, it's a it's a series of things. You know, one is that. There is a tradition in the country, um, which Aung San became the uh, face of, um, which is an older tradition, which, is, which seeks some sort of Burmese nationalist agenda and sees the military as holding this back. That's part of it. Secondly, there is this youth uh, upsurge because of the population dynamics. These young people you know, don't necessarily want um, military rule. They want something different than that. And it turns out, of course, that the, the platform that was available to them, Aung San's platform or Aung San herself, was not able to advance that. I'm, I got to tell you that it's incredible talking to people in Myanmar, despite her deal with the military, despite what she said in the International Criminal Court, people still admire her. And, and I, I'll say this is for two reasons. One is she's the daughter of Aung San, founder of, of Burma. Secondly, she herself for so many years was in prison you know, fighting at least in the name of democracy. So there is a very con a significant constituency that still stands with her. That's why the military doesn't dare, say, execute her or anything like that, because they know that she plays a role yet. Uh, I think that in this context, to come in, mischief is, of course, always available. That's why I'm saying this anti-China, anti-Russia thing suddenly got my ears up. I wonder where this is coming in. Um, why there's suddenly this talk about flights coming in from Kunming uh, facing some, uh, you know, uh, protest activity. Where is this coming from? It's worth investigating that, looking into that. But I think there are deep resources of patriotism and nationalism in Myanmar um, that simply becoming a shill for somebody else's agenda may not be that easy. Um, that patriotism has lasted in that country despite the fact um, that it's been, you know, under military rule for such a long time. And I, I would suggest to you that one of the reasons it's lasted for so long is that the negative consequence of the military rule, which benefited this patriotism, was that Myanmar was shut off from the world for a very long time and only started uh, opening up, as it were, uh, over the last decade. That condition of being shut off incubated traditions of nationalism, which are still very much intact. Well, viewers can read more of your work on the Globetrotter and check out your article about Myanmar there. While you're on the line, though, VJ, I just wanted to ask for an update of, regarding our friends in India. Just last week, I hosted Prasanth Radhakrishnan from NewsClick about the large the massive uh, strike taking place in India. And just within hours of that interview, learned that the offices of the NewsClick website 
had been raided by Indian authorities, editors and and journalists questioned for their work. Uh, what is the latest we know regarding their situation? Why have Indian authorities taken this move to crack down on NewsClick? Well, there's been the farmers' revolt since November 26th of 2020, and that revolt has deepened. Over the course of this period, NewsClick has covered it daily. NewsClick reporters, unlike many other reporters, have been right there with the farmers, giving voice to the farmers as they've tried to articulate their demands, their feelings, and so on. Um, in January, as a consequence of this incredible reporting, NewsClick got almost 40 million unique viewers. That's quite a bit for a small independent uh, you know, media site. Well, on the... Um, on 9th of February at 8 a.m., the Enforcement Directorate, uh, that is the one of the you know arms of the Indian government, uh, came to the owners and editors of NewsClick, uh, which is again a small company in India. They came to their homes at 8 o'clock in the morning, detained people for 113 hours, including the founder of NewsClick, Prabir Purkayasta, who's 73 years old, has a heart condition, has diabetes. His partner, Geeta Hariharan, the author, 67 years old, also has a heart condition. They were detained for 113 hours. The Patna High Court has said that an enforcement directed raid that exceeds 36 hours is tantamount to torture. Uh, this continued, as I said, for 113 hours. They downloaded all their materials. They harassed them, talked to them about how they are funded, started maliciously leaking materials into the press to suggest foreign funding and so on, you know, putting NewsClick through a so-called media trial. This is happening at the same time as the government arrested Disha Ravi, a young woman, for basically putting together a toolkit, which was tweeted by Greta Thunberg. Um, this is to support the farmers' movement. A young uh, lawyer uh, by the name of Nikita Jacob picked up in Mumbai. I mean, the Indian government essentially cannot, has no method to negotiate with the farmers. So instead of going after or actually having a reasonable negotiation with the farmers, they're going after people supporting the farmers, the media, news click, and anybody who's on social media offering support. You know, even Rihanna, who tweeted her support for this, and Mia Khalifa tweeted, tweeted the support for this. They are being attacked in the Indian press. It's really disturbing, and it's not getting any international media attention the way I think it would if this were taking place in, in another country, which may be or being carried out by a government that's not closely aligned with the United States. Uh, we're a big fan of NewsClick. Not only did we host Prasanth, but we know that he is also the co-host of your show, Give the People What They Want, with another friend of the Gray Zone, Zoe Pepper Cunningham. So viewers should check out uh, VJ's weekly show there. Where can people watch it? Well, they can watch it at um, the Facebook uh, page of People's Dispatch. And then, of course, it's a podcast after that. Um, it's a very humble show. And thanks for mentioning it. <laughs> well, we're big fans of the hosts. And I appreciate your time today, VJ. Thanks so much. Thanks a lot. Great to be with you. Mm -hmm.